Our gracious Father in heaven, once again, what a privilege to gather as your people to worship you, to um, dig into your word, Father. And uh, we ask that you bless this time, that you bless this teaching to our minds, and that we would understand and perceive and then um, take it to heart and that it would flow out in our actions, Father. That all we do would be to honor you, to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I was just using the comment from the Supreme Court about you know how quickly one of their decisions was going to be taken into effect was with all deliberate speed. And there seems to be more deliberation than speed with regard to that one. Uh, so here we are. Uh, I think this is like the third week on this session, <laughs> so, but I do intend to wrap it up. So just again reminding you where we are, we've been going through particularly the two great commandments uh, and looking at, you know, kind of unpacking that, we looked first uh, over a couple of weeks at the, the Ten Commandments, the, the, the other ten, <laughs> uh, which are a little bit broader. They start to fill out what the, the big two, if you want to put it in those terms, uh, are about. Uh, the, the first great commandment is love toward God. It's this vertical component which has to be the beginning of everything. We love because He first loved us. And so, uh, and besides that, He did all these little things like creating us and sustaining us and redeeming us. So he's the primary. He is the sovereign. He is the one to whom we owe this. Uh, you know, people deny it. They, they would rather ignore God uh, than submit to him. But we're all in Adam. We are all his creation ultimately believers and unbelievers alike. So there's that first great commandment, which is the source of our ability, such as it is, to fulfill the second great commandment, which is on the horizontal level, dealing with other human beings. Again, believers or not. Still, they are created in the image, and so we, and we have to live with them, <laughs> like it or not. So this is how we are told this is how you do it. So the first four commandments were directed toward God. The second, the remaining six were directed horizontally toward dealing with one another. Uh, and so we've got that as kind of a background. And now I, I'm progressing to some real, I hope, very practical. I hope it's all been practical, but until you start really getting down to the nitty-gritty of day-to-day -day relationships and things that are going on in our lives, it, it, we can kind of keep it at arm's length, and it may not really have the kind of impact that I'd like to see. Lori? You didn't hand out anything different last week, right? No, no. Okay, so exactly where are we? Second page? Uh, yeah, we're going to get to the second, starting at the second page of, I call it session 12, although this is probably about the 20th session of actual <laughs> meeting time. So... Love is the fulfilling of the law. Uh, I, I've given you these verses last time. 
And Paul repeatedly makes this point that it's if we are truly loving that we are fulfilling the law. And we are commanded to love one another, and now we're learning what that means in detail. And so we've gone through the commandments, and at the very end of last week, I was directing you to Colossians 3, particularly verse 14, where Paul says, above all these things, he's just gone through a list of stuff uh, that ought to characterize our lives, but he says, above all those things, waving his arms like I am, I'm sure, (laughs) put on love. and in the New King James, which most of us have, because that's you know what we use, it's called the bond of perfection. I prefer the ESV translation, which says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Whatever we do, we're supposed to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And obviously this all goes to our heart attitude. In fact, that's what the 10th commandment told us. Not only do you not perform the outward action of stealing, you're not even supposed to covet, which is the root attitude which often leads to stealing and doing other things. So even those do's and don'ts in the 10 all ultimately go back to our heart attitude. Okay, so now we come to uh, kind of a uh, historical example. And so this is where we're going with the, the, the notes which start on the second page, Roman numeral 3. I call this the church in Corinth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, because that's what we're seeing. And lest we say, oh, well, you know, that was those crazy Corinthians. They were living in a port town. They had all those profane, oversexed sailors wandering through and false gods and everything else. These are the Christians <laughs> that he's talking to <laughs> who are affected by their environment. There's still a lot of the world in the church when the church is supposed to be different from the world. And that's why there is this mixture. And that's what we all are. We are all mixtures still Uh, because we're not perfected yet. So what I want to do with these notes, and I I won't go into it in great detail because I really do want to get through this, is to look at the situation in Corinth, uh, the kind of situation that Paul was addressing, before we get to the famous chapter 13, the love chapter, because it's only when we see the background to it that we can understand what Paul is really doing in that chapter and we'll uh, hopefully uh, two weeks from today when I get back after Presbytery we'll get into chapter 13 and that's why I'm continuing to encourage you to read those Ferguson books that I handed out not because I'm going to go through them in detail but because they kind of give you the mood uh, starts you thinking in 1 Corinthians 13 terms. Uh, I'm actually going to spend 
uh, a lot of time pointing out things from Jonathan Edwards. And I'm going to tell you how you can access him. <laughs> He's long gone, but his, his words still live after him, even on the internet. So, Okay, but for now, 1 Corinthians. So, uh, what's the good? Well, we find that as we start reading through this, and again, I'm going to kind of point you to verses. I'm not going to read everything. But what we find uh, as Paul addresses them uh, is that they have been richly blessed. They have tremendous spiritual gifts. Uh, and he's saying he thanks God for you all, always. He's praying about them. That And this is in verse 5. That you were, it's already happened, enriched in everything by Him in all utterance or speech, speech and knowledge. What is the result? Uh, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or again, the ESV, I think, is a little clearer. So that you were, are, not lacking in any spiritual gift. Wow! You say, okay, that sounds like a great place to be. I'd like to be in that church. They got all this knowledge. They got all these spiritual gifts. And he's blessing them as saints. But, after that, then Paul has to say, but there's a few issues that we have to deal with. And basically, the rest of the next 12 chapters, there are little digressions, but he's explaining all the ways in which they're screwing up. And that's why I also say the bad and the ugly. And uh, I realized, going back to my original notes, that I summarized these things but if you want to check me out, as you ought to, I'm going to give you some actual verse citations that you can make notes of that I'm not really overstating the case. So, at the bottom of that page, I'm saying, okay, here's this list of things that are going on in the church. Well, they were suffering from all kinds of divisions. That's not a good thing. I mean, on the face of it, we know that's not good. So, I give you chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. 10. Now I plead with you, brethren. This is serious when he talks in that way. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. And as we go on, he's getting these reports from people about how badly divided they are. They're getting into partisanship. Is that a familiar term these days? It's religious, but it's still ugly. So they're saying, there's this group over here, I am of Paul. Well, that sounds good. Or, I am of Apollos. Apollos was this brilliant preacher that actually had come in and been sent to them to minister to them. And apparently he's kind of golden tongue. He's a great preacher, which is 
a good gift, a good gift. Or I am of Cephas. That's Peter. Peter also had come to Rome. He has sent people to Rome. But you see, they're all being placed in opposition to one another. And if you're really super spiritual, then you can say, and I am of Christ. I am so much more spiritual than you guys. But you're still being divisive. And so this is what he is facing there. Uh, and he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? You know, okay, I'm glad that you appreciate me, but really, what's going on? You know, I didn't do all this. And you're even getting divided over who was baptized by Paul and who wasn't, and all this stuff. And then there's, uh, so that's chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, and it comes back to it in chapter 3, uh, the first uh, verses 1 through 7, and he's saying, Brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. I fed you, I gave you the good word, and yet you are still carnal. Envy, strife, divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And he comes back to it. Some says I'm Paul, some I'm of Apollos. Who then is Paul? Why are you dividing yourselves this way? So, at the very beginning, they're all divided against one another. Secondly, they're arrogant. Now, the Greeks really thought very highly of themselves because they had this historical tradition of all these philosophers whom, if you added them up, you know, Philosopher A would make a point, and then philosopher B would destroy it, and then philosopher C would destroy <laughs> philosopher B. And, you know, I tried to do some technical philosophy because my brother, my elder brother, actually got a doctorate in philosophy, and I wanted to be able to kind of talk to him. And to me, it ended up being foolishness because ultimately I realized, hey, this is all human mentality which may accidentally <laughs> hit upon some truth but it's not revealed so they're making all of these theories up and they're trying to phrase and frame everything in their own terms anyway there's this arrogance we are the Greeks uh, you Romans may have conquered us but we're still the smart guys we're Athens we're Corinth we know this stuff yeah, yeah. And so I give you a series of verses. Oh, well, I'm going to give you a series of verses. Uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, he touches on this whole arrogance. Now these things, brethren, I've figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, what's revealed, what's in the Word, all these wonderful philosophies. For what makes you to differ one from another. That's verse 7. And what do you have that you did not receive? You are so smart. Well, where did you get it from? Now, if you did indeed receive it, if it was a gift, which everything we have is a gift from God, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And now he gets sarcastic. 
You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. So they're getting so big for their britches that even though some of them are saying, well, we learn from Paul, we learn from Apollos, we learn from Peter, we're learning from Christ, they're not acting like any of those people preached and taught them. They're saying, oh, this is the little Jack Horner. Look at me, sitting in my corner. What a good boy am I! Why? Because I've got this Christmas pie? He didn't bake it. He stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum, but it was given to him. It's all this attitude. Early 21st century, isn't it? We invented the selfie, except, you know, they didn't have the technology, but they were doing the same thing. So, I'll just give you some of these verses and you can follow up. So it's chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, and then again 17 through 21. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 2. And you are puffed up. You have not rather mourned, and we'll see why they should be mourning, that this one who is a professing Christian, a member of the church, that he has done this deed, and we'll get to what it is. So chapter 5, verse 2, and verse 6. Your glorying is not good. In the New King James, it's repeatedly phrased as puffed up. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've all heard stories about being puffed up, and like there's the there's a kind of a fable, maybe from Aesop, about this bullfrog who thought so well of himself that he, oh, I'm so big and powerful, and then he runs into a bull, and you know, obviously a bull is bigger than a bullfrog, and the frogs get so puffed up that he explodes. You know, no point in being puffed up. So, chapter 5, verses 2 and 6, comes back to it again about being puffed up and arrogant in chapter 10, verse 12. And what were the problems? They were infected with egregious sexual sin in the midst of their body. It wasn't in a corner. It wasn't hidden. It was something that they were all aware of. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man had his father's wife. So, wrapped up in all of this is this sexual triangle, if you want, not only is it immoral to have somebody else's wife, period, but there's this violation of that intimate family relationship, which already existed, it's son with his father's wife. He's a father's wife, isn't that the he's a mother? Hopefully not. No, I mean, that would be even worse. But (laughs) that would be incest too. Uh, But you know, no matter how you cut it, this is really ugly. This was incredibly sordid. 
And so, what did they do about it? Nothing. And you are puffed up, verse 2, and have not rather mourned. You know, they should be upset that this is going on amongst them, that he has done this deed, and the result of such mourning should be discipline, that who had done this deed might be taken away from among you. And Paul says, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, he who has so done this deed. And so he tells them, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's church discipline. We pray for the sinner, we admonish the sinner, we try and deal with the sinner, but if he is not responsive, then he does not deserve to sit as a recognized member of the church. Ultimately, spiritually, we hope he will be saved. And actually, if you read way ahead into Second Corinthians, it looks that's what, like what happened. They actually did effectively excommunicate him cast him out. Okay, you want to live like the world or worse than the world? Go out and be there and see how that works for you. And hopefully in some cases uh, this is some of the, the bright moments of being an elder where we've actually had to go through the agony and of a church disciplinary process. People actually get the message. The Spirit works in them. They come to a condition of repentance and they can be restored. And that really is the whole purpose of church discipline. Reconciliation. You know, repent and come back. And if it's true repentance, then we will gladly receive you back. They still do that. I haven't heard of anybody being excommunicated. Well, nobody likes to use that term, but that's what it's all about. The problem was that there was a practice or a really a misunderstanding of the scriptures that not only were Christians not to have personal relationships uh, which would kind of communicate that well we kind of accept you you know even though you're doing all of this stuff but that they would be so totally shunned that they could not even buy food or inhabit the town. Uh, you see examples of this. Amish. Amish. You know, we have all these wonderful stories about the Amish and how spiritual they are. Well, if you get right down to it, their theology is basically works salvation. And they, and it varies from group to group. Right. But they can be so harsh that somebody who uh, does something... There's no redemption. They are simply cast out and uh, shunned totally. And again, that's not the point. The point is redemption. And so, how we deal with these people, uh, I think in, uh, in some place Paul talks about treat them uh, like a tax collector. Well, in those days, to a Jew, a tax collector was somebody that you didn't hang around with. He was bad news because it was 
a given that he was corrupt. That was the whole setup to be a tax collector. But that didn't mean that you couldn't give him food, that you couldn't pray for him, you wouldn't socialize with him, but you might meet with him to admonish him. In fact, you have, we're told to do that. And That's more or less what you're pay your taxes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something on the, yeah. the, the mar marriage. <clears throat> it's sort of related to what we, you were saying there. And, uh, I know this couple. They, they did not get legally married. They, they had a private make-believe ceremony. Oh. And they moved to a different town and went to church there. And the pastor asked them, why do you guys have such different names? Which isn't all that unusual. Yeah. But they said, well, uh, you know, for the purpose of social security checks, mm -hmm. we, we didn't get, get married. He said, but we've, we've rendered unto God what is God's. We just haven't rendered unto Caesar what is Caesar's. <laughs> and the pastor says, well, I'm okay with that. What's your opinion? <laughs> No, <laughs> you, they haven't rendered to God or to Caesar. I mean, it's very clear. Marriage is a gift. It's God's ordinance from the beginning. One man and one woman, if I have to clarify, which a few years ago I wouldn't. But that's the way it's supposed to be. And... You know, if you stay unmarried in the eyes of the law just to capitalize on the benefits that you can get that way, that may be theoretically legal, but it certainly is not the spirit of what the whole system is about, which is, you know, originally it was for those who would be otherwise destitute. And... What, the second wife thing, or what do you mean? All of it. <laughs> but, yeah, it, there is a point where tax avoidance, which can be legitimate, I mean, you don't want to pay any more than you really have to, it becomes tax evasion. And I think it's the same thing with the Social Security benefits. If the system is set up so that it pays you such and such, that's the system, that's the way it is. And you only have one if your partner dies, you don't get them both. So yeah. that's what they're doing. So yeah. they both get what they had from the partner because she have lost it. So are, are you saying we should obey all of man's laws for the Lord's sake? No. <laughs> and you know I'm not. Well, that's what the Bible says. Oh, I got it. I got it. Until it starts to impinge on what God has told us. So, yeah. Well, I think in this case, too. It's not that they got married and tried to cheat the taxes, it's that they didn't get married yeah. for the reason of cheating it. So it's the didn't get married part that's the offense. Right, and if they're doing something in the desert under the eyes of God, in this country, you've got to have a piece of paper that says so. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's God. because it reflects the relationship of Christ and the church. Right. So if it's fake, then that's the sin. Yeah. It's not the oh, it's, it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. Yeah. Exactly. So we've managed to violate about four or five of the commandments all at one shot, right? <laughs> that, that's often the way it works out. So here we're looking at, at these people. Their church is infected with this really gross sexual sin. They're not doing anything about it. No church discipline. That's what 
the first half of chapter 5 is about, verses 2 through 13. Uh, oh, but where there are other means, they're suing each other in the civil law courts. Rather than trying to work out their issues in the church, I mean, these are other believers. So, he's making the point, hey, we don't have anybody, any wise guys, any you know, spiritual leaders who can help you resolve your differences, that you've got to go to the civil law courts and sue each other. And oh, that, what a great witness that is when the unbelievers look at us and say, oh, yeah, they say they're all about love and getting along and helping one another, but uh, Ralph is out there in the civil law court uh, suing John or what, whoever it is, you know, just hypothetical people. But this is what's going on. What kind of a witness to that? You know, love is the fulfilling of the law? Well, ultimately, there may be cases, civil wrongs, that are not capable of being resolved. Often that's because of the sinfulness of one or both of the parties. And the civil courts are there for a purpose. As when Paul, as a Roman citizen, stood on his rights as a Roman citizen not to be punished unfairly, illegally. But again, when we're dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ, our first resort ought to be What's the process? Go to your brother. Go to your sister. Say, hey, we've got an issue. Maybe you have sin against that other person to confess. Maybe you feel like they have wronged you, and they may not even be thinking in those terms. But that's where it starts. And there is the counsel of others in the church to facilitate reconciliation, helping both sides perhaps say, ooh, you both screwed up. You both have to deal with this, but we can work this out. But to go to the civil law courts, that's a last resort, which ought to happen almost never. Okay, I understand everything you're saying. That when I, you know, when you came to the arbiter thing, that's being a lawyer, okay? Yeah. And you get two people coming at you because you know what the legal... Part of the thing is, right? Um, I always dealt with the pure criminals. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Anyway. But now, had, to, to resolve it in the church and keep it out of the civil court, what if that doesn't work? Do they go ahead and go for it? I, I've known Christians that sue other Christians, and it's just like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. But they, they claim it's just like, well, this person stole my money, and things like that. Well... This is where it gets tough, because we may even have a, oh, I'll get to you, a legal grievance. But what does the Sermon on the Mount tell us? That sometimes it's better to say, okay, I have been sinned against. You shouldn't smack me in the face at all. You shouldn't force me into forced labor like the Romans were doing with the Jews. But what is my option as a Christian? 
isn't it better to say, okay, you've wronged me, I've tried to you know, work this out with you, you won't repent or anything else, but is better for the testimony of the church at large as represented by me, or in my life to say, okay, what am I supposed to expect in this world <laughs> anyway? Yeah, that's and, that for a couple. and so say, okay, uh, and, and I'm not going to get into loving your enemies at this point, because <laughs> that's, the, that's the toughest case. <laughs> but even those who have harmed you in the church, sometimes you just swallow it and you try and get along, and who knows, ultimately, maybe there will be down the road some kind of reconciliation. But whatever you do, you shouldn't be tearing the church apart. I have seen situations where there were people in the church, uh, including officers in the church, who had such controversies that could not, you know, in Christ everything is possible, but (laughs) humanly speaking, they weren't getting resolved. And so, rather than bring a complaint to Presbytery or something like that, people said, okay, uh, I'm not going to put the church through this. Uh, It's better for me to uh, be quiet and go away quietly than splatter this whole mess, you know, over the whole church, get everybody up in arms, divided. It's better to to say, okay, uh, we can't deal with it here, so... I'm just going to fold my tent and go. Fortunately, most places we have uh, alternate churches that we can go to. But sometimes that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it doesn't make it hurt any less. But uh, it's ultimately, what am I doing as an image bearer, as a follower of Christ? And in the midst of the pain, it's hard to keep that in mind, but that's ultimately what we're being told. Skeeter? The Lord's prayer was in black and white. Forgive me as I forgive my debtors. Yeah. And that's that's Jesus. And that may, that, I'm not going to say may not, that does not come easily. You know, when we have what uh, we consider a legitimate complaint against somebody, but that's where we start to really have to wrestle with things. Bruce? But does that, what you were saying about it may be best for the church, is it? Hmm. In that, um, God wants to heal. God hmm. is a healer. Hmm. If, if, um, if you don't allow the presbyter hmm. uh, to those to do their job, yeah. then um, is, isn't that kind of not helping the church to grow or lessening the... Well, that's where you, you know, someone has to make a real prayerful decision uh, trying to seek guidance about... Sometimes you, you can be morally certain that bad things have been done to you, but it's not something that can be easily 
shown to a third party, like a presbytery. And you can't get the other person to recognize it and repent. Mm. Uh, and so, again, what is my course of action in this situation? Well, you, you answer, the, the best answer was prayerfully. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's the thing, you know, we, we talk about these kind of in the abstract, but there are no cookie cutter solutions. <laughs> yeah, the one nice thing with organizations like the OPC having a, a book of church order, they really lay out a detailed procedure. And it's lengthy. It's not a quick thing. They, they stretch it out so that everything can really be brought out. And then things can really be evaluated fairly. And both sides get their, their arguments out. So other than kind of a, what, what you everyone's probably the gossip machine gets rolling right and then everyone gets divided like they were here and everyone's gossiping about it when you have a procedure like the book of church or you can shut that down and say Mm -hmm. we're not doing this no we're going to look at this fairly biblically with a lot of prayer and a lot of discernment to come to conclusion technically the whole church didn't know anything about it in the first place exactly yeah go to your brother in most cases it never should be and it, it's but I paraphrase it's probably right close to where you, you were coming from uh, and Paul says something like uh, wouldn't you rather take the wrong mm-hmm. than you know, put the church to shame yeah. put Christ to shame yeah so not easy decisions particularly in the midst in the heat of the battle or to the pain of the offense whatever it is but that's why, right now, when hopefully we're not in one of those situations, start thinking about this. How should I react when this happens? And it's going to happen. I mean, that's what Peter, his epistles, not this Peter, but I'm sure he agrees. Well, this Peter has happened to a bunch of times. Yeah. That's what his epistles are, are about. You know, why are you surprised? When the world does bad things to you, they hated Christ, they're going to hate you. And so you stick your head out of the foxhole, you're going to get shot at. This is what's going to happen. And so we have lived in a society that's been kind of quasi-Christian for a long time. It's getting worse, but we shouldn't be surprised. What if you're not a Christian? Get them? <laughs> Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. <laughs> okay, so you're starting to get the picture of what a mess this church actually was, despite the blessings that they had received. They've got this all going on, they're not exercising church discipline for the most egregious sexual immorality that you can conceive of, or wouldn't have conceived of until you read about it. They're uncertain about how even to deal with those amongst themselves who have slightly different views of things. And here we get into the whole issue of Christian liberty, of what are called the weak or strong believers. And actually, if you read it, it's kind of a question about who's really strong and who's weak, because we have these categories, uh, and 
Some of them are saying, well, I have this understanding. And Paul says, yeah, you understand that. But are you using that to bludgeon this other believer who hasn't quite achieved your level of maturity? Neither side should be judging the other. The weak who disagree that something is okay should not be, you know, unless you can point to actual heresy or actual violation, who's going to tell me where I should buy my meat? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a choice. But here, his example was this kind of thing. A lot of the meat that ended up out there in the market, Albertsons, Bashes, whichever, had started out as sacrifices in the temples. And, you know, unlike some of the Jewish sacrifices where the whole animal was consumed, they would just, you know, slit the throat and get the blood or get a little piece of it, and then the rest of the animal would go into the marketplace. And there were these... sacrifices are we talking about? Pagan. Pagan. Oh, okay. Uh, like in Corinth and Ephesus and these other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so here is this source of meat. And it's cheap. It's cheap. <laughs> and it may be nutritious. You know, uh, it's free range, non GMO meat. <laughs> it's right there. But it started out as a pagan sacrifice. And, and, and there are meats that are to this day, the Islamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, always, if they if they consume meat, they slaughter the animal to Allah. Mm-hmm. And you'll find in some of the big stores mm-hmm. what's called halal meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you know that it's been mm-hmm. sacrificed, then mm-hmm. you're not supposed to eat it. If, okay. if you don't have a clue, then thank the Lord yeah. for yeah. good meat. So here it gets here's where it gets complex because there were what Paul characterizes as those who are strong, they have the understanding, hey, it's a, a pagan idol is a pagan idol, it's a nothing. It's, it's kind of like Ezekiel, I think it was, writing about, you've got your stick of wood and you carve part of it into a, a, an idol that you bow down and worship to, and then you take the rest of it, the shavings, and you make a fire and cook the meat. They are nothing. If anything, they are demons, but they're nothing. The, that have any content for us as believers. But there are these other people who uh, are so tender of conscience that they say, oh, it was in that temple. And so now it's tainted. You know, it's perfectly good, wholesome meat, but because it was there, I don't eat that. And so what does Paul say? Think about what you're doing. Don't knowingly offend your brother. Don't go waving around, hey, I sure got this great steak that I just bought from the temple of Artemis. <laughs> when you know that there's somebody else who has a conscientious objection to that. But on the other hand, you as a conscientious objector, don't look for an occasion to take offense. That, that, that's something that I, I come back to often, is there is a real distinction between giving offense, particularly knowingly, Mm -hmm. and taking offense. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are people who talk about, well, I've got the gift of the spirit of criticism. (laughs) (laughs) I don't find that one. (laughs) 
but there's that attitude that you're, you know, that's your job is to be the watchdog, not the elders who are looking out for the spiritual welfare and not any, you know, obvious sin which is confronting you in the life of somebody else, but you're looking for it. I'm on the watch. I'm, pardon me ladies, the old biddy in the corner, <laughs> watching everything that goes by, looking for something to criticize and to gossip about and to cause problems with. And so this is a problem. They don't know how to deal with one another. And so that's in chapter 8, verses 4 through 13, and uh, in further detail in chapter 14, verses 23 through 33. Well, there's also the problem of those people who are not fully committed even to the Christian life. They are content to have a foot in each world. And so they get we get to that in chapter 10. And I'm running out of time, so once again, I'm not going to be able to finish uh, chapter 10. But this is these are things we're thinking about because this is not first just first century Corinth. This is 21st century Arizona, United States. So uh, in chapter 10, verse 14, uh, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves, I'm saying. Saying, you're not stupid. You can get this. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, and so forth. Observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar. So now he's kind of coming around to what's going on. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything, rather than the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. So here he's making the distinction. You go out, you go to the Corinthian bashes and buy some meat. You may suspect that it came from you know the temple or whatever, but you are not in any way endorsing that practice, that temple worship. But here he's saying, there are those of you who are saying, oh, I'm partaking of the table of Christ, but there are also these feasts going on in those pagan temples. Uh, well, it's a great buffet. I'll go and sit down there too. Where you are not distinguishing yourself as a Christian from that temple worship. You want to have your cake or your meat and eat it too. You want both sides. And so he's saying, you've got to think about what you're doing. Because you try and have it both ways... And ultimately, you're going to get neither. You're certainly not going to have the approval of God. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? But also, I hope I'm not boring you, but some of you may remember I'm a great aficionado of Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian first leaves the city of destruction, 
there are a couple guys who go with it. One of them is called Pliable, and he's all excited about the good things, the, the heaven that Christian is talking about. And then, uh-oh, they both fall into the slough of despond, this swamp, and they're struggling to get through this muck. And Pliable says, oh, well, if this is what you're promising me, I'm out of here. So he leaves, goes back to the city of destruction, and it's very interesting because there's a little P.S., a little follow-up on this. And when he gets back, not even those people in the city of destruction respect Pliable. They don't say, oh, you are so smart to separate yourself. They mock him for being weak and pliable and not following any kind of principles. So you try, uh, there's an old saying that uh, the guy who's always in the middle gets hit by traffic from both sides. <laughs> and you ri try to ride the rail and that gets really uncomfortable. You know, all of these ideas that you have to have principles and follow them or nobody's going to respect you. And so this is another one of those problems. Let me just, oh, I'm already out of time. Well, I'll pretend that that clock is right. So they're trying to have a Christian life and a pagan life at the same time. There are authority issues and these show up in various ways. I mentioned the place of women, and that shows up uh, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Uh, and I'm not definitely going to get into that at this point, uh, because that's a complex issue by itself. But also, there are various places where they're even questioning Paul's authority. I mean, when they're saying putting Apollos and Peter and Christ up against Paul, then they're questioning his authority. Uh, if you want to look those up, that's in chapter 4, verses 8 through 21. And then, again, he comes back to it in chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. How many times have we been warned about that, about examining ourselves, about doing it right, but in chapter 11, it talks about you guys come together and you claim you're having this communion, this love feast. And those people who are pretty well off, they're sitting over in the corner, they're getting drunk and stuffing themselves. And there are these other people, large proportion of that congregation were slaves or very poor. They got nothing. You're not sharing and then you say, oh, let's go to the communion table together. That, that's not right. That's an abuse. That is not treating what God gave us to draw us together in the right way. And so uh, that's all in chapter 11. Uh, well, pretty much the whole thing, starting from verse 17 to the end. Ultimately, they're being very arrogant about their spiritual gifts. They're failing to recognize that they were given to the whole body. For the body. Not so we can sit in the corner and say, Well, I speak the language of angels and you can't understand it, but I'm more spiritual than you are. And blah, 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 blah. That's not right either. So, ultimately... All 
all of these problems. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, and actually, um, segue to our next session because that's where I was going, and I'm obviously not getting there. So let me just wrap this up very briefly. All of these problems manifest a lack of real Christian love. What did we read? True Christian love does no harm to the neighbor. It's that simple. And if you're being arrogant, you're abusing one another, you're suing one another, you're not exercising church discipline, which may be redemptive to one another, that's not really loving. And so, all of this shows how Christian love doesn't act. Uh, you know, it's, it's, pardon the expression, a negative pregnant uh, that's one of those terms of art that we lawyers use. A negative pregnant. You state something and implicit in that statement is the opposite. If we are told you shall do this, then there is implied, like in the catechism, a duty to do the opposite. If we're told, yes, do this, then there is implied that statement is pregnant, is going to give birth to the fact that there is this negative that we should avoid. Right. So, this is what we're seeing through the first 12 chapters of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so, 1 Corinthians 12.31, and this is a, a good end point, uh, Paul says to them, Okay, he's talked about gifts in, in chapter 12, and I'm going to come back to that a little bit, because he does. Are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healings, and do all speak of tongues, do all interpret? No! There are these various gifts that are to be used for the benefit of the whole body. But, and here's another one of those big adversatives, here you should see the opposite. But, don't get hung up on this stuff. Earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet, I show you a more excellent way. So here you are, Mr. and Mrs. Corinthians, sitting there listening to this, and they say, Ooh, wow, we've got all these spiritual gifts, and this is so great. And yet he's talking about higher gifts, better gifts, the best gifts, and more excellent way. Now, that would have been extremely attractive. They were probably expecting some kind of Gnostic-type revelation. Ooh, now we're going to be admitted to the inner circle and get the real secret passwords and know all of this really fantastic stuff that nobody else knows. We're already arrogant about our spirituality, and here we can go even further. But what he's going to talk about them is the secret is real love. And this stuff that you've been hung up on this way, even these gifts don't really count. Mm -hmm. 
they don't really matter. And so, I had hoped to get through this, obviously I haven't. So this is where we'll be next time, two weeks. Pete, Lord willing, will cover for me next week, but in two weeks we'll be to Roman numeral four. The greatest thing in the love in the world without which all else is meaningless, which is true Christian love from the heart. So tune in two weeks, or actually next week for Pete. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we look at what was going on in that church and in greater or lesser degree we must see a reflection of ourselves because although these seem to us extreme examples, the seeds of those same kinds of sins continue to exist in all of us. We pray that we will be continually more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ through the action of the Spirit in our lives and our uh, actively seeking more and more of that sanctification. But we know that we will not be perfect in this life, that the old Adam is still there. And so we pray that you would help us to depart further and further from it, and we thank you for the forgiveness for those failings which we have through Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.